Hello everyone and Namaskar. Today's discourse is titled, A Guide to Human Conduct, and this is the first part. Introduction. Morality is the foundation of sadhana, spiritual practice. It must, however, be remembered that morality or good conduct is not the culminating point of the spiritual march. As a moralist, one may set an ideal for other moralists, but to do this, is not something worth mentioning for a sadhaka, spiritual aspirant. Sadhana, in its very start, requires mental equilibrium. This sort of mental harmony may also be termed as morality. People often say, I follow neither a religion nor rituals. I abide by truth. I harm nobody, and I tell no lies. This is all that is necessary. Nothing more need be done or learnt. It should be clearly understood that morality is only an effort to lead a well-knit life. It will be more correct to define morality as a dynamic force rather than a static one, because balance in the extraversial spheres of life is maintained by waging a postless war against all opposite ideas. It is not an intro-external equilibrium if the unbalanced state of mind takes a serious turn by pressure from external allurement and if the mental disturbance is found to be intense, it is likely that the power for internal struggle may yield, and consequently, the external equilibrium, the show of morality, may at any moment break down. That is why morality is, no doubt, not the goal, not even a static force. The morality of a moralist may disappear at any moment. It cannot be said with any certainty that the moralist who has resisted the temptation of a bribe of two rupees would also be able to resist the temptation of an offer of 200,000 rupees. Nevertheless, morality is not absolutely valueless in human life. Morality is an attribute of a good citizen, and it is the starting point on the path of sadhana. Moral ideals must be able to furnish human beings with the ability as well as the inspiration to proceed on the path of sadhana. Morality depends on one's efforts to maintain a balance regarding time, place, and person, and therefore, there may be differences in moral code. But the ultimate end of moralism is the attainment of supreme bliss, and therefore, there should not be any possibility of any imperfections of relativity. It cannot be said that the ultimate aim of human life is not to commit theft. What is desirable is that the tendency to commit theft should be eliminated. Not to indulge in falsehood is not the aim of life. What is important is that the tendency of telling lies should be dispelled from one's mind. The sadhaka starts spiritual practices with the principles of morality, of not indulging in theft or falsehood. The aim of such morality is attainment of such a state of oneness with Brahma where no desire is left for theft and all tendencies of falsehood disappear. In the sadhana of Ananda Marga, moral education is imparted with this ideal of oneness with Brahma, because sadhana is not possible without such a moral ideation. Sadhana devoid of morality will divert people again towards material enjoyments, and at any moment they may use their mental power, acquired with much hardship, to quench their thirst for meager physical objects. There are many who have fallen from the path of yoga or tantra sadhana 
and are spending their days in disrepute and infamy. Whatever little progress they achieved through forcible control of their instincts was lost in a moment's error in pursuit of mundane pleasures. It must, therefore, be emphasized that even before beginning sadhana, one must follow moral principles strictly. Those who do not follow these principles should not follow the path of sadhana. Otherwise, they will bring about their own harm and that of others. Acharyas must have noticed that people of over-selfish nature fear Anandamarga itself for fear of following its strict moral principles. They are concerned that the spread of Anandamarga may inconvenience the fulfillment of their mean, selfish desires and therefore they malign the Marga in an effort to conceal their own weakness and dishonesty. But remember that those who are lacking in moral spirit do not deserve to be called human beings. However hard they may try, their tall talk alone cannot camouflage the meanness of their minds for a long time. Yama Sadhana The first lesson of human conduct is Yama Sadhana. We shall discuss all aspects of Yama Sadhana. You know that Yama consists of five principles. Ahimsa, Satya, Asteya, Brahmacharya, and Aparigraha. Ahimsa, Satya, Steyang, Brahmacharya, Parigraha, Yama. The practice of these five principles achieves control by different processes. The word Samyama in Sanskrit means regulated conduct. It should be clearly understood that Samyama does not imply destroying something or somebody. Ahimsa. Manovakeya Sarvabhuta Namapida Namahimsa. Ahimsa means not inflicting pain or hurt on anybody by thought, word, or action. This word is wrongly interpreted by many. Some so-called learned persons, in fact, define the word ahimsa in such a manner that if one adheres to it strictly, it is impossible to live not only in a society, but also in forests, hills, and caves. In such an interpretation of the term ahimsa, not only is killing prohibited, but even to fight a defensive fight is not allowed. By tilling the land one may cause the death of innumerable insects and creatures under the earth's surface. Therefore, the use of a plow is not permissible. The followers of such an interpretation of Ahimsa say that those who want to lead a religious life should not use the plow themselves, but employ other low-born people to do the same to save themselves from the sin of destroying life. Sugar must be poured into the abodes of the ants, no matter whether human beings have food or not. The poor must spare their blood from their bodies to save insects, the born enemies of human beings. This is no definition of ahimsa. It merely causes confusion. It is contrary to true dharma. It is against the very laws of existence. Even the process of respiration involves the death of numberless microbes. They are all living beings, and to save them, one will have to stop breathing. The administration of medicines to the suffering will have to be stopped because such medicines cause the destruction of disease-causing bacteria. If Ahimsa is so interpreted, where will such interpreters be able to stand? They will have to give up even filtered water because the process of filtration of water means destroying the insects that cause impurity. It is also not possible to drink impure water because then it is likely that such microbes might die in the stomach. In the post-Vedic age, this type of ahimsa was practiced in India for a long period, and as a result, 
life for ordinary citizens became very miserable. The populace viewed with fear the religion dominated by this so-called ahimsa. They were forced to accept an atheistic belief, and they left the path of dharma. Devoid of any code of conduct, and intent on giving first preference to their own selfishness, such atheists became a burden to the society and to the world. Those who wanted to enforce the so-called ahimsa-influenced religion became impractical and impotent by nature. Thus, there is a pressing need in the modern age to rethink these historical facts from a new angle of vision. This age was followed by another wherein another new definition of the word ahimsa was propagated. According to this definition, himsa meant to cause pain to living beings but did not include the slaughter of animals for food. This idea is very much mistaken. If causing pain amounts to himsa, the slaughter of animals for food must also be called himsa, because the animals do not offer their heads willingly at the altar of the death for this cause. Recently, one more interpretation for this word has been heard. It somewhat resembles the second definition described earlier, but it even lacks the simplicity or sincerity of that interpretation. According to this interpretation, ahimsa means non-violence or non-application of force. Possibly, it is this interpretation which has distorted most of the meaning of ahimsa. In all actions of life, whether small or big, the unit mind progresses by surmounting the opposing forces. Life evolves through the medium of force. If this force is not properly developed, life becomes absolutely dull. No wise person would advocate such a thing, because this will be contrary to the very fundamentals of human nature. The champions of nonviolence, so-called ahimsa, have, therefore, to adopt hypocrisy and falsehood whenever they seek to use this so-called ahimsa for their purposes. If the people of one country conquer another country by brute force, the people of the defeated nation must use force to regain their freedom. Such a use of force may be crude or subtle, and as a result, both the body and the mind of the conquerors may be hurt. When there is an application of force, it cannot be called non-violence. Is it not violence if you hurt a person not by your hands, but by some other indirect means? Is the boycott movement against a particular nature not violence? Therefore, I say that those who interpret nonviolence and ahimsa to be synonymous have to repeatedly resort to hypocrisy to justify their actions. The army or police are necessary for administration of a country. If these organizations do not use force even in case of necessity, their existence will be of no meaning. The mark of so-called ahimsa or nonviolence on a bullet does not make the bullet nonviolent. Those who are not adequately equipped to oppose an evildoer should make every endeavor to gain power and then make the proper use of this power. In the absence of ability to resist evil and in the absence of even an effort to acquire such ability, declaring oneself to be nonviolent in order to hide one's weaknesses before the opponent may serve a political end, but it will not protect the sanctity of righteousness. The meaning of the word ahimsa in the sphere of sadhana has already been explained. According to its correct meaning, one will have to guide one's conduct carefully to ensure that one's thought or actions cause pain to nobody and are unjust to none. Any thought or action with the intention of causing harm to someone else's, any thought or action 
with the intention of causing harm to someone else amounts to himsa. The existence of life implies destruction of certain lower forms, no matter whether it is intention of doing harm or not. The process of respiration kills thousands of millions of protoplasmic cells. Whether one knows it or not, in every action, such living cells are dying and being destroyed. The use of prophylactics means destruction of millions of disease-carrying germs. The crop-eating insects, parasites, mosquitoes, bugs, spiders, etc., are also being killed in innumerable ways. This is necessary to maintain one's livelihood. It is not with the intention of causing pain to them. Such acts also, therefore, cannot be classed as himsa. They are to be done for self-defense. As a result of clashing cohesion within the physical structure of every entity, and also for the maintenance of structural solidarity at every moment, a process of formation and deformation is always taking place. Rice is obtained from paddy. Is there no life in paddy? Paddy can sprout. It is also capable of reproduction. For the preservation of the physical body, you prepare rice by killing the paddy. Do you have any intention to harm anybody while preparing rice? It is thus seen that life depends on other forms of life for its very existence. There is no question of himsa or ahimsa here. If this is conceived as himsa, living beings will have to subsist on bricks, sand, and stone. Even breathing will have to be stopped, or one will have to commit suicide. It is, however, very necessary to remember two things in respect of edibles. First, as far as possible, articles of food must be selected from among those items in which development of consciousness is comparatively little, i.e., if vegetables are available, animals should not be slaughtered. Secondly, under all circumstances before killing any animal having developed or underdeveloped consciousness, it must be considered whether it is possible to live in a healthy body without taking such lives. The human body is constituted of innumerable living cells. These cells develop and grow with the help of similar living entities. The nature of your living cells will be formed in accordance with the type of food you take. Ultimately, all these together will affect your mind to some extent. If the cells of the human body grow on rotten and bad-smelling food, or on the fresh flesh of animals, in which mean tendencies predominate, it is but natural that the mind will have a tendency of meanness. The policy of eating, without due consideration, whatever is available, cannot be supported in any case. Even though there may not be any question of himsa or ahimsa, it should not be your policy to do what you wish. You must perform actions after due thought. For continued subsistence, a policy will have to be adopted for taking food, otherwise it will be against the code of aparigraha. What aparigraha means will be explained later. Himsa and the use of force are not identical. Sometimes the use of force may result in himsa, even though there is no thought in the mind to cause pain. When the pressure of circumstances compels the use of force against certain individuals resulting in himsa, such individuals are termed as atatai in Sanskrit. Chetra dharapahari cha shastradari dana paha agni daga radash cheva shadate hyata tayina. Anyone who, by the use of brute force, wants to take possession of your property, abducts your wife, comes with a weapon to murder you, wants to snatch away your wealth, sets fire to your house, or wants to take life by administering poison, is called an atatai. 
If any person or a nation wants to occupy all or part of another country, the use of physical force against such invading forces is not against the principle of ahimsa. Rather, by a wrong interpretation of the term ahimsa, or by interpreting himsa and brute force as identical, common people will have to suffer from loss of wealth, happiness, or other hardships. Sometimes it so happens that people, instead of convincing superstitious people, injure their sentiments by their behavior. A perusal of history shows that the antagonists of idolatry have on many occasions destroyed beautiful temples which were unique examples of architecture. They destroy the beautiful images which represented the expressions of sculptural art. All these acts are extremely violent because they cause severe pain to the idolaters. And consequently, the idol worshippers adopt an obstinate attitude towards the idols even though they are fully convinced that idol worship is futile. As a result, not only is the spiritual progress of the idol worshippers hampered, but the progress of the whole human society is retarded. It is worth noting that even if in any country, all the people without exception give up idolatry, the spiritual aspirants who follow the principles of brahmacharya will preserve images carefully in museums out of appreciation for sculpture and aesthetic taste. They will not destroy these beautiful works in any circumstances. Destroying a work of art also results in the destruction of the sense of subtle appreciation, and this is in no way proper. While the mind is still attached to religious or sectarian signs or submits to superstitious rituals, it remains engrossed in crude objects. Any crude method to prevent such sectarian superstitions will cause reactions in the mind, and this will hamper sadhana. The best course, therefore, is to help these persons to expand their minds by means of Brahma-Bhavana, cosmic ideation, and only in that case will they be able to give up superstitions easily. The principle of Ahimsa, one of the aspects of Brahma-sadhana, must have been clearly understood now. Let us now consider whether parents punishing a child amounts to Himsa or Ahimsa. No, it is not Himsa, because there is no intention of causing harm or pain at all. The purpose of such punishment is not to make the child shed tears. The purpose of such action is only correction. Whether it is a thief or a robber or a gentleman or a friend or anybody else, any action with a true spirit of rectification cannot be termed as himsa, no matter how harsh it may seem. It must now be clear that in day-to-day -day life, it is not at all difficult to follow the path of true ahimsa. Taking meat as food is harmful in hot countries, especially where vegetables are available in abundance. However, under medical advice, as a diet after recovery from illness, or as one of the constituents of medicine, eating meat cannot be called either himsa or greed, because the meat is eaten under those circumstances, only to maintain life. In extremely cold countries, people eat animal flesh, wear animal skins, and burn animal fat under the pressure of necessity. Heroism is revealed in fight against aggressors. Consider the Ramayana, the great epic. It describes Sri Rama waging a war with all his might against Ravana, who abducted his wife. Sri Rama's actions was in no way against the principles of Ahimsa, because he did not invade Lanka with any desire to conquer the territory or to cause harm. Consider the Mahabharata. Mahapurusha Sri Krishna had insisted to the Pandavas to take up arms against the Kauravas, because the Kauravas were aggressors 
Atatai, who had taken possession of the land by force. No one would accuse the very incarnation of love, Sriman Mahaprabhu, one of the great revolutionists in the social and spiritual world, of adopting ways associated with Himsa. But he too pounced like a lion on the tyrant Kasi, judge. If Himsa and use of force were synonymous, Mahaprabhu, the incarnation of mercy, certainly would not have done so. The use of force against an aggressor is valor, and desisting from such use of force is cowardice. But the weak people must assess their strength before indulging in violent conflict with a powerful aggressor. Otherwise, if a fight is started without acquiring proper strength, injustice may temporarily triumph. In history, such an error has been called Rajput folly. The Rajputs always went forward with courage to resist Mughal invasion. No doubt, they fought valiantly, but they faced the enemy without assessing their own strength. They suffered from intrigues and internal dissensions, and hence they always lost battles and died a heroic death. It is therefore necessary to acquire adequate strength before declaring a war against an aggressor. To pardon aggressors before correcting their nature means encouraging injustice. Of course, if you find that the aggressor is bent on destroying you, whether you use force or not, it would be proper to die at least giving a blow to the best of your might, without waiting to assemble the adequate forces. Thank you.